Would you like to turn to Acts chapter 2, this being Pentecost Sunday, it's an appropriate one to cover. I rather like that section of the church that keeps to the church calendar because it covers all the main celebrations, doesn't it? Wonderfully well. Acts 2 then. Father, we are so grateful to be able to read together your word, your life-giving word. And though we read of something that happened so long ago and so far away, yet we believe because it is your word, you can speak to us today, we can enter into the goodness of your word and live in the fullness of your spirit. We don't want to be hearers only, Lord, we want to be doers of your word. So come and speak to us, we ask. Lead us into the truth that sets us free and enables us to come to know you better. In Jesus' name, amen. So let me read from Acts 2 and verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, Are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Parthians, Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me, 
Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will live in hope because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the powers of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words he warned them, and he pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favour of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And he's been doing so ever since, hasn't he? What a great word, isn't it? You can't read a bit of it, can you really? You had to read the whole lot. Because it's such an uplifting chapter, isn't it? Such a great story. The coming of the Spirit. What happened on the day of Pentecost was a big event, capital B-I-G, a big event. There's been a lot of big events in the history of the world and certainly through the history of the Bible. Creation was a big event. The fall was a big event. The flood, the exodus, the exile, the birth of Jesus, the death and resurrection of Jesus, and now Pentecost, one of those big things. So it's not just the next thing that's going to happen to the disciples, it's the next thing on God's agenda, which is really important for us to register. Pentecost was a big celebration, a big festival, and this was the fulfilment of it. Acts is a really important book because it joins the Gospels to the Epistles. If we didn't have the book of Acts, we wouldn't know who Paul was, would we? We meet him in the book of Acts, but he writes a large section of the New Testament. If we didn't have the book of Acts, we'd never know who he was, would we? We'd never know what a church looked like if we didn't have the book of Acts. 
Jesus refers to it. Paul speaks a lot about it, but we don't see it. But in the book of Acts, we do see the church. And baptism in the Holy Spirit. Every single gospel has John the Baptist saying, the difference between my ministry and his is that I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And some mention fire. And Paul explained exactly what that means. But what does that look like? The book of Acts tells us and shows us what it is in fact. So the church carries on the life of Christ and it's empowered to do that by the work of the Holy Spirit. You can say the book of Acts is all about the life of Jesus still carrying on in the life of his church. No wonder Pentecost is a big event. This is the fulfilment of Jesus' promise to be with them forever. He went ten days ago in chronological terms in, back into heaven, the day of ascension. But he said, I'll be back. We normally, Christians living in this day and age, think of that as a second coming. But actually, he came at Pentecost too, didn't he? Because he said, I'll not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. I and the Father will make our homes with you. The Holy Spirit will come. And the blessed thing about the Trinity is you have one, you have all. Because each one is God. They're not the same. The Father isn't the Son, the Son isn't the Spirit, the Spirit isn't the Father or the Son. They're all different, but essentially to have one is to have the fullness of the Godhead. So when Jesus promised the Spirit, he's promising himself and the Father too. So the waiting is over, the promise has come. And the word of God is being fulfilled in their hearing. It's not wind, it's a sound like wind. It's not fire, it looks like tongues of fire. Speaking of Old Testament imageries of God himself. And the baptism in the Holy Spirit is not actually a phrase you find in scripture. It's called here, what is it? They were filled with the Holy Spirit. And this is what um, John the Baptist meant when he said he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And uh, that's what Jesus mentioned in chapter 1. But here it's called a filling it's also called a pouring out. It's also called a receiving at different points in the book of Acts. But people are basically filled to the full with the Holy Spirit. And you can't have too much of him, can you? As I've said before, I'm sure I've said it before, if you've been listening to me attentively, I'm sure you've heard almost everything I've said before. I tend to repeat myself. I've got to that age in life when I repeat myself, but some in preaching is deliberate. And here's the re repetition. That you can't live the Christian life, it is impossible. Absolutely impossible. Categorically impossible. You cannot live the Christian life, no matter how hard you try, without the Spirit. Because if you try, you won't make it. The only possibility is the gift of the Spirit. He brings life. Most people connect this um, Pentecostal event, the 3,000 people who became Christians that day, people understanding what some people are speaking about, all these languages, with the Tower of Babel. You remember that? Way back in Genesis 11, where God scattered them all over the world and made the languages different. And this is a reversal of that. They've come from all the nations, well, all the nations around the Mediterranean. You know, they're all over the world. And they hear... 
people speaking, but everyone hears in their own language. A miraculous event. There's also another event that is similar, not quite the same. In the Exodus, they arrive at Mount Sinai in the third month, which is probably about 65 days later after the first Passover. So this is only 50 days after Passover. And then Moses goes up on the mountain, doesn't he, for 40 days. When he comes down from the mountain with the law, the people have cast off restraint and are worshipping an idol that Aaron has made. And Moses breaks the two tablets of stone and goes wild with anger at the people. And on that day, about 3,000 people were killed. On this day, 3,000 people enter into eternal life. So the coming of the Spirit reverses the effects of sin and enables us to live this wonderful life. So the first thing that happens when the Spirit comes is inspired, Spirit-inspired praise. When the Spirit is poured out, what you get is an explosion of singing and praising. Not just singing and praising, but songwriting as well. Therefore do not be foolish, says Paul to the Ephesians, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead be filled with the Spirit. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. The first thing the Spirit does when he brings, he fills the people is to bring this Spirit-inspired praise. And they just overflow with praise to God. They look like they're drunk. That's what the people think. They're drunk. They've had too much wine. It's not true, but that's the effect. They are so overwhelmed by the presence of God, they can't give enough. So they're drunk with the Spirit. They're pouring out their hearts in praise and adoration to Him. And that accompanies moves of God's Spirit. We don't sing songs because we have to. Even if someone graciously encourages us to sing from the front, we sing because our hearts are full and we can't get enough of it. We just enjoy singing and praising God and we get caught up in wonder, love and praise. That's what's happening here. And the outpouring is understandable to others. In the Bible, tongue simply means or a language. That's what it means. And here it just means human languages. Later on in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, it means heavenly languages as well as earthly languages. But all God's doing is enabling people to communicate with one another, or at least help them understand what's happening, praising God. Here's the second thing that happens, is spirit-inspired understanding. Peter stands up and says, they're not drunk. This is what, this is what, this is what Joel was speaking about. I don't suppose he'd been reading Joel in his quiet times, because scrolls in those days were really precious documents. And people didn't have one of each in their shelves at home. Peter was a fisherman. He wouldn't have had a bank of, 60, of uh, 39 scrolls, or whatever it was. They were kept in the synagogue. So here's a man being reminded of what he knows, and suddenly the penny drops. This is what Joel said 600 years ago. And then he quotes him. 
And he does more than quoting. He adds a bit. Are you allowed to add to scripture? Well, he does, making it new scripture. He does here. He adds the little phrase in verse 18, and they will prophesy. Well, Joel didn't say that, but Moses did when someone complained that people over there, not part of our group, are speaking in tongues and whatnot. Shall we stop them? They said to Moses. Moses explodes with fury. No! I wish that all God's people could prophesy. And his heart's desire was not that a few, but that all. And Peter puts those two together and adds it to Joel's prophecy. He gets spirit-inspired understanding. You and I have to work hard with the word of God. We have to do our research, read hard. But in the end, it's not just a question of how clever you are. It's about the spirit opening up the word. Isn't that true? That's not an excuse for me not to do my preparation for preaching. But I know that if I can depend on the Spirit, as you depend on the Spirit, then we can get understanding of God's Word. And it's nothing greater than to have a kind of serendipitous, oh, moment. Have you ever had those? Oh, now I understand what it means. And that's what Peter's having here. When the Spirit comes, he opens up the Word of God. Why wouldn't he? He was the one who inspired it. He wants to be the one who gives us understanding of it. Not just a technical understanding where we can show off to each other about how much we know, but an understanding that enables us to live in the good of it. Here's the third thing then. Spirit-inspired preaching. It took me about five minutes to read that chapter. It's going to take me a lot longer to speak about it. But within that chapter, not all of it, but within it was a sermon. Did you know this? So it's not even five minutes long. And it's so effective... This is brilliantly effective as it's spirit-inspired that 3,000 people will walk down the front and say, can we be part of this? That's extraordinary, isn't it? Three would satisfy most preachers. 30 you'd think it was revival. 300 you'd be overwhelmed. 3,000. This is spirit-inspired preaching. It's concise, it's full, and it's full of Jesus speaks about Jesus from beginning to end. Knitting in passages of scripture, showing us what they really do mean and how they apply to Jesus, and coming to a crunch. It's a bit of finger wagging, isn't it, to this Jesus whom you crucified. Not too many preachers do that stuff. I don't know whether Peter actually wagged his finger, but it's pretty direct, isn't it? Sort of thing to root people to the spot. He accuses them of murder. It says that God raised him to dead from the dead Gave him alive. We're witnesses of the fact, so you can't keep a good man down. And sums it all up. So spirit-inspired preaching is the third thing that happens when the spirit comes. We're able to speak. Many of us get terrified, don't we, about speaking to others about Jesus. Certainly if someone said, next Wednesday we're going out knocking on doors in Hurstman Zoo, 7 o'clock in the evening, who's be here? Nobody, I guess. We'd all find excuses because we all get very nervous about that sort of thing, don't we? We're not talking about that. Every day is full of opportunity if we are sensitive to the Spirit, both not to say anything and to say something, or to say something and then stop saying it after a little while. There are people who give us their wonderful testimonies about how they sat down next to a person in a in a train on, on an underground train in London and between one station and another they struck up a conversation 
explain the whole book of Isaiah to them, led them to the Lord, baptized them, and then they got off the next station sort of thing. You know, it's wonderful, isn't it, that they're evangelists and they can do that sort of stuff because it's a particular gift. But most of us will be terrified about that. But part of it is simply being able to speak into the moment with the Spirit's help, sensitive to where people are. Peter gives them, this is good stuff, but he knows where the people are. So when the Spirit comes, he gives Spirit-inspired speech. So Charles, every time you open your mouth, you should be asking the Lord to help you speak the right words to the right person at the right moment and stop when you've finished so the Lord can have a bit of room to move. And here's the fourth thing. Spirit-inspired discipleship. Not only were they baptised there and then, and I always say that it's in passing, whenever I come to the word baptism, I always say to any group of people, if you haven't been baptised, why not? I won't any more of it than that. Let's carry on, because it belongs to the beginning of your Christian life. That's where it belongs. So if you haven't been baptised, you jolly well should be, and talk to someone about it. They were baptised there, and then the 3,000, and then what happened to them? They were incorporated into the church of 120 members, so it's going from 120 to 3,120 or thereabouts. Probably the numbers are a little bit more vague than that, but that sort of thing. That's overwhelming, isn't it? The mathematicians among you will have really worked out the proportion. Is that that's still on I don't know. Is it about 1 to 12, is it? Something like that, 1 to 15? So the church goes 15-fold overnight. But see what they devote themselves to. They devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. They devote themselves to these things. They want to know what God has said, so they devote themselves to what the the apostles can teach them. They want to know as much as possible. Bible reading for them, scripture reading, is not going to be a burden. They want to know what God has said. They want to know what Jesus taught. They can't get enough of it. We have a volunteer Ashburnham place. I occasionally have a chance to preach in the evenings or at volunteer time. Whenever Margaret's in the group, I know what will happen afterwards. She will come up to me and say, Charles, I have a question for you. She's a girl full of questions, full of questions. I would be disappointed if she didn't come up to me with questions after and say, Charles, I've got some questions for you. And we will have a conversation, sometimes for half an hour, sometimes for an hour, all the questions she's got because she can't get enough of God's word and she wants to understand it. It's not enough for her to listen to it for 20 minutes and then put it down. She wants to know why and how and what she's got to do about it. It's really satisfying as someone who speaks the word of God to find people who really want to know. These people really want to know. To the fellowship, that's not a cup of coffee after the service. That's not fellowship. That's a cup of coffee after the service. The fellowship is shared lives. That's fellowship. A cup of coffee is part of it but doesn't summarise it all. And I do remember a church I used to preaching a long time ago, far away, where they had the, in the evening service, cup of coffee afterwards. But the lady who used to announce it said it, and this is how she said it. After the service, there will be tea and coffee served in the hall behind. Please move through as quickly as possible and have your coffee and tea so we can get cleared up and home as quickly as possible. Well, why why bother to do it then? Why not just not have it at all? Someone suggested at one point, let's get together and spend a bit of time just talking with one another, maybe praying with one another, catching up with one another. Over the years, it's just become a case of, we've got to do it. But it's not like that here, is it? You linger. 
I mean, no one here has a roast lunch, do you? You can't do. You're, you're still here at one o'clock, aren't you? Chatting with one another, following up with one another, and enjoying each other's company. It's shared lives. That's what they're talking about, shared lives. You see, in the body of Christ, there's no need because there's a sharedness about things. So when Jesus said to the rich young ruler, sell all you've got, he wasn't inviting him to become a pauper because the next thing he said was, come follow me, be part of my group. And in my group, nobody needs anything because anyone who has shares with him who has not. So there's no need. You see what happens here? Selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. Read chapter 5 and 6 and you'll find that they still had their land to sell then. They're not selling it all. They're just saying there's anyone got a need, they're part of it. That's what fellowship's all about. Shared lives. They devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread in a moment. And then to prayer. Because they want to relate to God. And everyone is filled with awe. You have a spirit-inspired reaction. Everyone is watching. First people thought they were drunk. They've been put right about that. But the effect of this move of God's spirit is what? Everyone was filled with awe. Um, they break bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favour with all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. When the Spirit moves, other people take notice. You can't help but it. Some will say, they're just drunk. I want nothing to do with it. Others will say, it's that mad lot down the road. I know that. But others will say, something's afoot. Something's afoot, and I want to go and see. John was kind enough to send me a link to a church in Cumbran. That's in Wales, in case you hadn't worked it out. Near Newport. And this lovely young pastor just speaking to camera, humbly tells you in a few minutes what God is doing in his church. And he does it in a matter-of-fact way. He says it's not to do with us. It's to do with God. We're just giving God room. It's a lovely, lovely testimony. He's a very godly man, as far as I could tell from a little connection like that. But the effect is that people are coming from all over because they see something and they can't work it out. And people are coming and getting converted and healed and all sorts of things. When the Spirit is at work, people see it. And some will respond. And God is adding daily to the number of those who are being saved. I heard a preacher say a long, long time ago to the church of which I was a member, he said, if the Spirit left this church, would you notice? And would there be any difference? Because the thing ought to collapse. It was a challenge. He was, he was just being provocative to us and a challenge to us. He made, it was making the point that we really need the Spirit, don't we? Well, it's Pentecost Sunday. We don't have to wait for Pentecost Sunday. We don't have to wait for any Sunday. These guys did. That was when the moment came. But we can ask God day by day, moment by moment, hour by hour, for filling the Spirit for every part of life. And the thing is, God will give it to us. Give himself, the spirit, in as much fullness as we can contain. A little later he'll say, there's a condition of obedience, but as much as we want the spirit, God will give us his spirit, because it's his desire. You don't have to wring it out of him. You don't have to plead with him. 
was his gracious desire to give us his spirit. So that not just so we can have a good time on Sunday mornings, that as well, but so we can live lives that are full of the spirit of God. So the church explodes into life in chapter 2. And the ramifications just rumble right the way through the book of Acts. It goes off like a long dog, doesn't it? It's an incredible story, isn't it? Wouldn't you have wanted to be there? But I tell you what, a lot of people in Jerusalem were there and they never noticed. But those who were hanging around, those who were around about, saw it, took notice. And basically the church is up and running. This is the birthday of the church, Pentecost, in a very particular way. And we celebrate it today. So happy birthday to you all. This is the birthday you should celebrate. Happy birthday. If you want to go home and make a cake and put a candle on it, good. Don't put 2,000 candles on it. I'm warning you, it'll be a fire risk. A vortex of heat. Just put one on. Happy birthday, church. God is still giving himself to us.